Hello, everyone. I'm Jahan Wang, Executive Vice President and Head of Entertainment Banking at City National. I'm thrilled that you're joining us for another episode of Conversations. Today, we're joined by Damien Bazadona, President and Founder of Situation Group, a conglomerate of marketing, advertising, and technology companies with a mission to inspire impact. From some of Broadway's biggest hits to the Super Bowl, Damien has led experiential marketing for many of the world's leading brands. In 2001, he founded digital advertising agency Situation Interactive on four core values, passion, innovation, collaboration, and commitment. The company has grown significantly over the last 20 years and has partnered with dozens of brands in the entertainment, not-for-profit, arts, and culture worlds, including the Metropolitan Opera, Meals on Wheels, and Major League Soccer. Damien, it is an absolute pleasure to have you with us on the podcast today. Welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Now, uh, your your background is is quite interesting, and the fact that you are an entrepreneur, a very successful one, um, and you started a marketing company. Can you tell us what inspired the, the Situation Group? Yeah, I mean, I think like, first of all, I think live experiences, so much of what we do is based on live experiences. And so as a business, the idea of live experiences and people coming together, I think of it as like nourishment for society, avocado for the soul, right? When people kind of come together. So all of our business is centered on that idea, whether it's arts, sports, higher education, Broadway theater, those are the types of brands that we work on. So I, I mean, so personally speaking, when I launched the company, I have a deep love for these things, right? Just for the idea of coming together, the energy surrounding live experiences, um, match that with technology, which I'm also kind of a tech nerd. I'm all in. Yeah. Well, well, you're one of those super motivated and highly energetic people. So uh, that, that totally makes sense. You know, starting a, a brand new business is not easy. Can you, can you tell us maybe a little bit about some of the challenges maybe you faced in, in the beginning and, and, you know, marketing is obviously not an easy uh, industry to be in. Yeah, I mean, well, we started as a digital company, so digital marketing focus. And we started around 2001, to which where digital is becoming just really in its growth phase. So at that time, in many respects, I was trying to learn an evolving skill set, learn an industry while learning how to run a company. And so you have kind of these kind of multifaceted learning that was happening because I had started the company by myself. Uh, I didn't know how to run a company. And I also didn't, I don't come from a background of Broadway, which is one of the industries we started in. And the digital was a growing, evolving skill set. And so those three worlds of kind of like these multifaceted learning that had to happen was hard. Um, I would say getting through that, I and I think this anyone could probably relate to this. I have a deep, natural interest in all three of those things. I find live experiences fascinating. I find technology fascinating. I find trying to run a company fascinating. So anytime you have a deep, natural interest towards something, you're going to go all in on it. So I kind of poured my heart into that and the passion into it. And then ultimately, I was able to hire people that felt the same way that had these expertise in these categories. So I say that was the hardest part was kind of the, the learning those three things that were happening all at once. Was, was there anything in particular that maybe was an inflection point that that where the company just kind of took off? Or was there any one or two particular things that kind of stand out in your head? I think over, but, you know, so I think I'm, I think I'm in my 23rd year, somewhere around there, if I'm doing the math correctly, somewhere. And I think in that world, I think one of the things that we've done this entire time, because you've had, again, as a digital company, there's a lot of growth that started to happen in the beginning. So I went from one person to about 50 people 
um, in a reasonable short period of time. I don't remember the exact year count, but probably four years or so. And that, to kind of bootstrap that, it happened reasonably quick. I think the, I think the, the, I hope what we did right in hindsight is remembering who we were and who we weren't. So as a digital agency, we were digital specialists and we've stayed digital specialists this entire time. So we've had a lot of pressure in the beginning saying, well, you guys are just a digital company. You should also do traditional average. You should do all these different things. And so we kind of stuck to our guns and just sort of said, let's just know what we're good at, try and do it better than everybody else. And hopefully things will work out. Because if I tried to expand too far too fast, I think things could go awry. And so if I think about it over time where we are today, the world changed more than we changed. Like, so the world changed kind of to where we are. Things have just become digital. That's what we do. So now, yes, we do a little bit of everything we do traditional. We do a little bit of everything, but that's now more just an add-on to what we do versus our core. So I, I hope that our growth and our success will stand around as long is really knowing who we were, knowing our client's business, and just remain focused. Uh, I hope that, and I would say being a good team player. I like to believe we're a very good team player. When we walk into a room, people go, oh, those are nice people. Uh, I think that goes a long way. I hope it does. Well, I, I, I remember when I met you, you know, and I was thinking in the back of my head, and, and I think it was you and a couple other folks on your team. I, I always think it was like, wow, these are really nice people. So so it works. Thank you. It works. So, so, so t tell us, you know, you're on Broadway and you've done some campaigns. Is, is there anything that you that kind of stands out as as uh, interesting or or, or what are some of your plans in terms of uh, revolutionizing marketing and live entertainment? I mean, tell us a little bit about what what you're what you're seeing out there. Well, I think the 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 huge shift is to understanding how to leverage data and insights into actual business performance. Now, this has been around for decades. It's not like any. This is when, the, when digital came around. It's like, wow, we can we have data. We know a lot more about our customers and. Like, we're still in that zone where it's like we have all this amazing information and in service of what? What do we want to do with it? You know what I mean? And so I think, and I'd say in the, in the live event space in particular, uh, in the Broadway space, a lot of it is going to be about, so how are you using that data and insights for audience development? Whether this is in sports, how do you turn a one-time sports fan into a multi-sports, multi-live event sports fan? All this stuff. So I think all the innovation where I feel like everything is going is like, how are we using data and insights to kind of get people to, to build audiences and audience development? And I think the data and insights is going to be a powerful vehicle to do that. At the same time, for anybody in the live event space of any form, audience development is a long-term plan. So data and insights can help, it can support, and that's really where we are in that phase. But I'm really right now in this moment trying to get clients and partners to start thinking, what is your long-term plan? to get people in the future to want to be able to come to your experiences because like it doesn't happen overnight. So yeah, I can have data and insights and I can connect different dots and bring people in. But if people, if you're not putting the, it's legwork, audience development is legwork. It takes a long time. This goes for Broadway or anything else. So people are going, well, we, we got to start using that data and insight to get new audiences here. I'm like, kind of true. We can do that. We can help. But if people have not, if we've not made, put the effort in, in terms of product, pricing, all those elements over time, putting into schools, all those different dynamics, you're not going to get the long tail of that. It, 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 data and insights only gets you so far without a real fundamental plan for audience development. So I think to me in that space, I think that's a really big thing for live experiences because tickets are expensive. Yeah. They just are. And they're going to become more expensive. And so people need to value it uh, no matter what category you're in. I, I couldn't agree with you more, especially for for Broadway, right? And I, I'm, I'm going to... 
digress. Not, I'm going to take us in a slightly different uh, direction, but we're going to come back to that later on. I, I, I want to talk about Situation Project, which you started in 2011. And it's it's uh, geared towards the support of students in underserved communities. And, and I think the goal there is to provide impactful, experiential opportunities for these students. Can you tell us in your own words what, what, why you started it and, and, and what, what is the goal there for Situation Project? Yeah, I think some of the, the best analogy I could think of is imagine you ran a restaurant and at the end of the night, you had a whole gigantic, you had bowls of broccoli and food, just fresh broccoli that you can sit there. And at the end of the day, at the night, you're going to take that broccoli because your doors are closed. You're going to take it. You're going to throw it all out in the garbage. Meanwhile, you look outside and you see there's a significant number of people who are food insecure, who need that broccoli, but you're just going to take it, throw it away in the garbage every day. On the live event side, I have access to ticketing inventory, and I could see pretty clearly when tickets are going to go empty. And you could see in a distant of when that's going to happen. A lot of this is public information. You could see it. So for example, on Broadway, for over 20 years, putting the pandemic aside, which is still the case, over 2 million seats go empty every year. That's insane to me. And at the same time, New York City public schools, let's just, in our own backyard, which is a fundamental part of what Broadway is, is their arts funding is being gutted out of schools. And then you go to the underserved communities, forget it. There's almost no arts funding whatsoever. So it seems crazy to me that we would have this block of tickets that are going empty and then not use them in some powerful vehicle to do that. The cast would agree, the company would agree, the producers, everyone would go, absolutely, let's do that. So that's effectively, when you ask me, the inspiration is because we could. We looked at that and said, oh, we can join these two pieces. I'm a public school graduate. I grew up on public assistance. Like I struggled financially as a kid. And public schools were really good to me. And it's sad to see sort of the existence of them just becoming, they're struggling financially and the students take the impact of that. So that was, that was really how we got behind it, how we started doing it. So effectively, we go and we fundraise, we take the money that we use to buy significantly reduced tickets to live experiences. Producers, everyone participates and really helps us out. But we've reached over 50,000 students to date and we're just getting started. We have a lot of exciting things on the horizon. And I think it's incumbent on everybody in their community to do something. And this is an ease to me, us, is like, of course we should do this. The artist should get paid a little something, which is what the ticket price is for. Everyone should get paid a little something except for the student. The kid, we need to invest in kids and not just for the sake of the arts community, for the sake of the community, it just seems great. And then, so on top of that, we also do career development. We invest in the communities. We do a bunch of different stuff. I, I've read in in, um, in a blog article of, of yours about X factors. Um, and, and I think if I remember this correctly, it talks about how organizations set themselves apart. And, you know, in terms of Broadway or the performing arts space, can you can you think about what is setting apart some of the organizations that that do well uh, in in live entertainment and maybe some some that don't? Yeah, I think it's about consistency of values at every touch point. For what it's worth, I think City National does a good job of this. Thank you. And I, I say this because we went through a lot together during the, the pandemic, to which I was really more deeply introduced. Everybody that I've met brings a particular set of values and kind of, you guys are, a, I don't know how you, I don't know the banking industry well enough to say, you feel like a community bank, but in the sense of obviously you have major resources and you're part of this larger conglomerate, but you guys bring a sense of service to the conversation and to the relationship. That uh, and then to be in the middle of New York City and feel that is extremely powerful. So I like to think about, so I think about this idea of consistency of values at every touch point is what I think about is what that X factor is. 
And, th- and that means every person has that ex- every person kind of understands that. And, and I'm not saying it's easy to do it. Like it's hard, like it's hard to communicate, Hey, here's what we're all about. It's hard to train it. It's hard to then evaluate it. It's hard to maintain it as an organization. So if you've got thousands of employees, obviously this is hard, but it's not like, it's not rocket science. Like if you know what you believe in, what you stand for and the people that you value and it's a, the leadership team understands it, how they operate, um, it can be done, it, but it's hard. And I think what happens is in a live event space, some are really good at it in the sense of it's from the moment you buy a ticket to the moment you see the show, where they're investing in, tr- in terms of what is the service like, all those different touch points. And I'm sure you've been to experiences before where you go in and you go, wow, that just felt warm and fuzzy. You can almost gauge how happy an organization is, is how happy the frontline workers are. Do they like being there? Does the usher look miserable? What is it? All those different dynamics. And so I, to me, the X factor is just the clarity around the mission. What do we do? What are the values? And can you actually pull it off at scale? Um, and I think most performing arts organizations, I would argue, can. And I think they should. I think they're going to have to to succeed over time, especially when you start thinking about like subscriptions. Oh, I'm going to give you money to come back over the course of a year many times. If I don't see that X factor, fully understand that in place and whatever that might be, it could be service, it could be anything else, but what is it that you differentiate and everyone in that organization knows how to share that? I think it's going to be challenging to succeed. I do. I, I totally agree with that. And, and thank you for the kind words about City National. We're, we're very intentional. We, we follow core principles. And I think that's what you're feeling when you, when you meet other colleagues um, from City National is because we all share a common core number of principles and and it really does set us apart i think from uh, a lot of other banks so i appreciate those kind words you know you 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 said uh, earlier that you were sort of a, a techie or a tech nerd all the rage right now is ai right i mean you you can't pick up an article without reading something about ai and how it's impacting a particular industry what's your opinion or view of of ai it's been so. It's been or it's been a big part of our business for quite a while. So, for example, on the way that we buy, if you think about it, the way that we buy media as an agency, we buy a lot of programmatic media. Behind the scenes, AI is making a lot of the decisions on how and what we buy and when. So, it's been kind of this idea of like the machine is doing it. Idea has been happening for quite some time in our business. The same with some of the creative assets we do over the years, where the machine is effectively going, "Oh, this is the ad that they're supposed to see." So, a substantial part of our work has been very. We've been in the AI space for quite some time, and in fact, most of the major media platforms have been saying, "Hey, we know you usually buy media and you target people based on your instinct, but trust the computers." Trust the AI engine. So we've been having this conversation for a very, very long time. Now, pop culture-wise, now with ChatGPT, now you're talking about how it impacts schools, there's all this other stuff. So I look at it and say the opportunities are just endless. I mean, truly endless. And every time I think I've thought of something, I think a little bit further through, I'm like, oh my God, you could do that. Or every time I'm like, oh my God, this will never work. You'll hear an idea, you'll go, oh my God. It is just, there's a new idea every day that are different applications that have a positive transformation on our lives. There's no question of that. And so I, to me, I'm like, I look at it and go, that's exciting. I think the, the more interesting thing to me is, is transparency in the data set. Because that to me is, and I don't know, that's what makes you the most nervous about it, is like, what is it modeling off of? Who decides and who is informing us of what those inputs are? And that to me is the biggest, that's the most, the, the, I would say the danger, the threat, because that is effectively that's the challenge to me. I want to understand when I go into when I type something in, where is it pulling that information from? What logic is it using and who defined that logic? 
And the trap, this is this is the friction with the government and uh, major social platforms right now. They'll they'll say that's our secret sauce. We can't tell you that. And to us, that's kind of like the fabric of our trust. And so that game is, and I don't think it'll ever be fully transparent. So that's what makes me a bit nervous about it. We're trying to go to a place of AI has this great potential, but really who owns those rails? Who define what is the transparency of that? Because that that to me is is really the sort of the fascinating stuff of really where uh, the market goes. But it's endlessly fascinating. Like and, and what it could do for society could be yes, there's terrible things that can happen. But if you play the the better part of our society, of our of our minds, amazing things are going to happen out of it. If we if you if you believe in humanity, we're gonna we're gonna use this tremendous resource for good, right? Yeah. And I've heard I've heard some great examples. I heard just an example the other day about how they talk about they're using it in schools, right? And I have a, I have a 14 and 11 year old. They go, oh my God, they're using it in schools. But then you hear and I'm like, then you hear a case study about the private uh, schools for for um one of the school academies for elementary schools. They had talked about how you can use uh, AI as an engine for tutoring. And effectively, you try to put the answer in, but it never actually gives you the answer. You, you could try to ask for the answer. It, it asks the student how they can get the answer, right? So imagine like, and, and so you kind of say, I, I work in, we work in underserved areas, right? That, think of the number of children in underserved areas. There's no resources for one-on-one tutoring for those kids. There's barely food, like healthy food, you call it food, but look at some of the, what some of these kids eat. So like all of it's stacked against them. So I'm kind of saying, well, if AI can create, honestly, like one-on-one tutoring engines that enable the guardrails on that, you create like technology software, you go, oh my God, that is a profound impact on people's lives. That you might be able to use technology to vehicle to help some of these kids work through their homework or some, like that could be cool. I don't know. I, I, anyone else have an idea? <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm like, no one else doing anything, right? So I'm like, that could be cool. And it could also be a disaster, but I'm like, try it, do something, you know. So, no, that 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 that's a great perspective and point because I think one of the the first fears is that uh, uh, what you mentioned earlier is that you would just you would just ask uh, what is the answer so that there's no research that it's just too easy and 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 yeah. maybe uh, kids growing up in in the current age um, would would lose some of the. Um, the research skills, right? That that we all grew up on. So no, that's yeah. a that's a great perspective, and I'm and I'm glad you brought that up because that that certainly opens my eyes a little bit. I was like, you know what, Damien's right. And if listen, if it prompts the right question, it would be better than a real tutor. It would be like because because uh, I you know I'm sure we've seen some tutors. I'm like I'll trust ChatGPT over the tutor. <laughs> if if it asks the right question, you go, oh my god, it's going to really get you thinking. You know, it could if you again if you believe in the best of something, yeah, it's possible. You know, and so yeah, yeah, that that that, that is fascinating. I'm going to I'm going to change the the gear again on you a little bit. You know, we we've got some pretty huge tours recently, you know. Uh last year it was Elton John's Farewell Yellow Brick Road. This year you can't go anywhere without hearing about Taylor Swift and the Eras tour. And then I think just most recently maybe in the last couple of months or maybe last month it was the Sphere in Las Vegas. You know, and and you're in experiential marketing. Tell tell us why do you think um, these things have become so popular, in your opinion? Well, but the, let's think about what you just referenced. All of those from what you've referenced, I know people went to two out of the three. I don't know anyone went to the Elton John one. I went. It was quite good. Okay. It was spectacular. So here's what I would say. I would say all three of those you mentioned are great experiences. All had a heavy price tag, probably. Actually, I know that. Uh, and I would say all the people that I know who went would say they had spent the money that they spent 
would then do it all over again if they could. I, I, I agree. I, I am I am now a Swifty. I wasn't before I saw her in concert, yeah. but I am now a Swifty. So yes, I agree with you. See? And so that's powerful because at face value, you go, this is expensive. Okay, it's very expensive. Great. Now go. Then I come back and I go, I would do it again. I would have I would have made the same decision again. Doesn't mean they go see the show again, but they would say, I would have made the same decision again. And I think that's extremely powerful. So it's got to be a great experience. This is the same. I've made the same argument in nightlife. When if you see some of the mega clubs now, you go and they charge you $1,000 for a, a bottle of vodka that costs them probably $45. And people go, they sit around, they, and then they leave. And then the next morning they wake up and they go, like, I, God, I can't believe we spent $1,000. And they say, but that was a great night. I would do it all again. And if the experience is good, it, you could. this is what makes things kind of amazing. This, but the second thing specifically to those that you're talking about is that success wasn't overnight. So there's there's two things to that. First of all, there was uh, if you think about Taylor and and Elton John, like both of them. I, I say Taylor like I know her. Um, we all know her. They, there, there's been a long investment in that fandom. They treat their fan the way they. Th- there's a bond there that is formed. And Sphere putting you two in there, is, those are long-standing bonds or relationships. That people go, you know, there's a bond there. So I, I sort of put that. You, I think you put those two components together a little bit of like, okay, it's a great experience. Now there's a limited, there's obviously a limited capacity. Then there's some hoopla that jumps into Taylor Swift hit another category that just, I think there's something to do a little bit of like, there's a lot of forces that kind of come together for that. But it's not overnight success. And the sphere, I'll say this much, if that wasn't a good experience, we would have heard. I know people who went and they go, it was a kind of an amazing experience. So I'm in the camp of like, you could charge. That's why it's always fascinating. You think of the Broadway industry. They, they, they will talk about gross potential. I'm like gross potential. We could put an, add another zero to it. There, our gross potential is how much is someone willing to pay for that ticket? We haven't even scratched the surface of that. If we really want to play that out, if that experience is amazing, everyone thought $500 was expensive for a ticket. What about three grand for a ticket? If the show is that good, if Taylor Swift wants to make a Broadway musical tomorrow, I could tell you what that gross potential would be. More zeros than we've ever seen, right? So part of it is just like gross potential is a mindset. I, I agree with you 100%. And it's interesting you bring up Broadway because we know, you know, the the pandemic obviously hit hit Broadway's, you know, right between the eyes, right? Shut down for a, a fairly significant period of time. And it's still kind of working its way back, right, to pre-pandemic levels. Um, you know, in a blog that you that you write, you, you talked about it needing a big dose of honesty. So what what did you mean by that? I think the, the the component when I was what I was what I've been at least trying to talk about with the industry about just generally speaking, is that like a first of all we need to center our conversations on the customer, on the patron. We do not do that. We have not done that, and there's and I feel pretty confident I'll go to the grave with that one. We spend more time worried about ourselves, and I understand that. We are this industry. Broadway has been a little bit of a sick industry in a lot of ways. So effectively, it's the relationships between all of the stakeholders, and that's not that's not healthy. I'm not that that needs to be better, right? So the relationship between the producers, the theater owners, the theater owners, the actors, the unions, all these different dynamics in there, right? We spend a lot of time focusing internally, but I don't feel anybody looks around and says, "Well, what about the patron, the person who buys the actual ticket?" And I think we've gone, uh, we've really gone a little bit too far in really leaving them out of the conversation. And so I think the, I think one of the things we need to really think about as an industry is we need to recenter that conversation. We need to recenter what does the patron want and who are we defining as a patron? 
If we want to be, and so this goes like you got the short term, you got the long term. The long term, broad, the short term, we know this. Broadway is not reflective of the communities in which it is. Broadway is not reflective of New York City. If we want to look at the demographics of the average income in the theater, all those different elements, we are not reflective of the city. We have significantly more tourists than we used to have over time. Like if you looked at that progression over time, we're just not. And uh, that's okay. That's just where we are today. And that's we still want to love every person that comes in and do our best to do. If you want to send, say, longer term, if we want to have an honest conversation about audience development, how do we diversify the stage? And I say diversify in its broadest sense of terms to be reflected the communities we serve. That's a long-term conversation. That's when I'm talking about putting arts into schools. That's one element of that. If I'm talking about investing back into the community, doing performances in community, opening up ticket prices for all types of like all those different elements becoming relevant and having stages and audiences, excuse me, new artists that we may not have heard of before in creating spaces. It's all those different elements is a long-term conversation. So I feel like we, uh, my bigger point, I think I'm trying to make is that I think we need to focus on the patron and, and a little bit outward and less inward. I think we need to, and I think this moment is important for that. Yeah, no, no, that that's a great point. And, and as, as you well know, as an entrepreneur and successful business person, you have to focus on your client, right. To be successful. Yeah. And I think you're seeing yeah. that there's maybe a little bit of a di- divergence right now that's happening. So a- as a marketer or digital marketing company, what do you see as the future of marketing maybe for Broadway? Well, the future, I would say there's some things we know. Here's what I think about Cause I, this is my hope my business changes over every three, every three or four years, like the skill sets change over kind of like, you know, and, and so I'm sort of used to this. I would say there's some things we know. We know we're going to be having a lot more conversations about AI, right? It's going to have an impact on our businesses, artificial intelligence and, and machine learning generally. So we know there's going to be issues and conversations around data privacy. We feel pretty solid on that. That's going to, we know we're going to have more conversations around AR, like augmented reality. What could that be? That's like kind of the Apple, the new Apple product, all those different. We know there's going to be a lot of conversations about that, but I know we don't know. There's a lot more we don't know. An indefinite amount that we don't know, that as we've all seen, just kind of over the past, like it's just the world, marketing, consumer behavior, you name it. We just don't. So in reality, nobody knows. And so the winners in the space, I think, is those that have an open source growth mindset. I think it's more of a mindset. But when I think about what the future is, I think it is a mindset of being nimble, open source in the sense of we're willing to accept other ideas. We're willing to create space for others at the table rather than a closed mindset. And in an industry like Broadway, that's a limited supply business. We're not known for that. This industry is not known for growth mindset because it's not a growth industry. There's a certain number of seats and we're able to rise the ticket price, but it's not, you wouldn't refer to this as a growth industry in its current form. That doesn't mean it won't become, it couldn't become one with a whole bunch of different ways. But the reality, so uh, to me, the winners in that space, we as an industry, we as an agency is, is your ability to kind of keep a growth and open source mindset to do that. Um, I think is key. So I, I think about in our industry. So clients will call me on any new technology that's happening and they'll say, well, what's the answer, Dave? And I'll say, I can tell you right now, our agency team does not and cannot have all those answers to the changing landscape. It's not possible. But I believe we can be the place where the answers can be like almost found, nurtured, and evolved if we keep an open source mindset. So we, for example, we produce a lot of thought leadership events. We bring our clients, our partners, our competitors, other industries. We bring them into the room by design. What What do you think? What are we missing? Let's you know. And not everyone operates that way. I think that's dangerous. I think you cannot have a closed mindset, and I think it's a little bit of a muscle. Some people are good at it, 
But I would say some aren't because they haven't had to be. I think we all have to be. That's what the future is. It's going to change way, way too quick. That sounds like you're trying to help Broadway kind of improve that muscle, right, at, at this point, right? And 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 maintain the the uh, open mindset, which which is pretty uh, pretty spectacular. So as we look into to next year into 2024, what what interesting ventures or partnerships are you uh, working on or looking forward to, Damien? Um, well, we're we're expanding more globally as a business. So I think what's interesting, again, if I just use, it's not exclusive to Broadway, but I can use Broadway as an example, is how some of that IP is able to be folded up into there's one brand and it's around the world. That's not really the way, if I'm just staying in the Broadway lane, how it's thought of today. Right now, it's like individual productions around the world. So they may all have the same name, pick a brand title, but the reality is they operate as sort of different productions and there's no kind of laddering up into, I'm a, I'm a consumer of this musical. I think there's a massive opportunity to that. I think technology allows for it. I think consumers are going to want it. And so it's almost like making customer service just the experience better overall. So if I go see the same show in New York or I see that same exact brand in London, I'm a customer of that brand. And we just don't. And there's a whole bunch of reasons why it's not like that. That to me, as I look at 2024, 25, I think it's having a better understanding of who's in those seats, how we communicate to them with a little bit more effectiveness and care and grace and all those different elements of a thank you. Hey, thanks for coming to our theater. It's the, it's not just our theater. Shoot, thanks for coming to our show because I recognize there's theater owners and those different elements. I think to me, that's exciting in 2024. That's where we're making a big investment because that's a huge swing that's not been there before. And I don't know. And then, and then everything else that I don't know, like the idea of waking up and coming to work and not having any idea of what's going to punch <laughs> me in the face. There's something that's actually oddly intriguing about that. It makes it interesting to come to work. And I got really good people at my company, like the best human beings. And we just come together and we do good stuff together. So, you know, when, when you were saying that, um, it reminded me of an article that I read that you had written about Starbucks, <laughs> right? <laughs> Where to your point, you you said you would go to various, and I think you said you actually yeah. have gone to hundreds. And yeah. one of the things you appreciated about the the Starbucks or that that experience was it was always very consistent. You knew what you were getting, and you felt valued. And I think that's the comment that you just made in terms of the Broadway product, right? Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Yes. Yeah. No. Fascinating. Look, uh, Damien, um, thank you uh, so much for joining us today. Um, you you are a leader in your space. Uh, very much appreciate your time, Damon. John, thank you. Truly enjoyed it. Truly, thank you.